Okay, so this, um, this is the first week of a new class. Um, it's a class that um, Jeremy Mullen has done uh, most of the work uh, in, in pulling this together. This is really his class that he uh, has designed. Um, his, his schedule and mine lined up such that we'll each be teaching about half of it, but I wanna give him credit for, uh, for pulling this, this together. Um, the handout that's over there, most of that material, um, it, uh, it doesn't cover all of what we're going to talk about today. Um, we're going to give a, an overview um, of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation before we actually dive into each of those topics for a full week uh, in weeks two through four of this class. Um, and the handout covers that material. And most of it is pulled straight out of um, material that um, RUF uh, supplies for the purpose of marriage counseling. Um, I went through and I edited it. I tried to remove all references to marriage, to spouse, you know, to whatnot. If there's something still left there, I apologize. I might have missed something. Um, but the fact is that almost everything in there is applicable to all of our relationships. Um, this class is about dealing with sin in the church. Um, it is about um, living in the reality that the gospel is good news for sinners. And it's not just good news for sinners who haven't yet put their faith in Christ, right? And then you put your faith in Christ and you're no longer a sinner, right? We know that that's not how it works. Um, we are all still sinners and the gospel remains good news for all of us uh, who are sinners. We have to grapple with the reality of living in a community full of sinners. Um, and in a community full of sinners, we're going to sin against each other. Um, and the Bible gives us a lot of wisdom, a lot of resources uh, to know how to deal with that. Um, over the course of the next six weeks, you know, what we're, what we're going to try to emphasize um, is that repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation form the backbone of the kingdom of God. Uh, they are central to the life of the church. This is not a, um, you know, this is not a side topic. Um, you know, this is not really something that we can think of as, you know, for emergencies only. Uh, we should really think about this as being our day-to-day -day life as a community, that repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation are constantly ongoing processes. Um, Martin Luther's first thesis of those 95 was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So we talk about this a lot that for us, faith and repentance um, are like inhaling and exhaling. It's just, it's just what it means to be alive in the church. Um, at the end of the day, we have to ground our hope in what God has done and in the fact that as 2 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 2 tell us, God uh, has reconciled, he is reconciling, and eventually he will fully reconcile um, those who are at enmity in his kingdom. Um, he has reconciled himself to the world. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. God in Christ was reconciling himself to the world. Um, and because he's reconciled himself to the world, Ephesians 2 uh, immediately draws the implication um, that there's reconciliation between um, Christians who you know, by nature, uh, would be at odds with each other. Um, you know, Paul specifically refers to Jew and, and Gentile, but the language he uses about the dividing wall of hostility being broken down and Christ himself being our peace, that's powerful language that should apply to every source of enmity uh, and conflict that would, that would exist in the church. So that's, that's what this class is going to be about. We're going to dig into, and, and like I said, we're going to spend, you know, a full week each um, on <clears throat> repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation after doing an overview today. Um, and we're really going to try to get very practical. Like, what are the practical steps? What does this actually look like? Um, questions or comments or just initial thoughts before we dive in? So, 
one of the things that makes this topic so difficult um, in our in our modern era. Um, you know, so we live. You know, the, the the title of today's course was the Church as a Community of Peace, right? And we're talking about how repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, these are just supposed to be normal parts of the everyday life of the church. That's who we are as a people. But that's not the world that we live in at all. We don't live in that world. We live more in, in this world, right? We live in a world where outrage culture has is a thing. Um, you can Google that and find lots and lots and lots and lots of hits, lots of results. Um, you know, the picture that this, in some ways there was a, you know, a, a sort, sort of lighthearted, funny joke in the early days of the internet, you know, I remember seeing a, a, a cartoon, you know, where a, a woman is all dressed up and ready to go out for a, a date with her husband and she's at the door and, and he's standing there, sitting there at the computer saying, go without me, I have to stay here, someone on the internet is wrong, right? Um, and that has morphed into just a way of life. Um, you know, this, this, is, this is today what we do, um, that, uh, you know, our, our culture seems to thrive on identifying people who are wrong um, and then dehumanizing them. Uh, you know, casting them is not simply wrong, um, but condemned, outside, ostracized. Um, there was a, an, an article, uh, a column a few weeks ago in the, in the New York Times um, by David Brooks. Um, it was called The Cruelty of Callout Culture. And it told the story of this uh, woman, um, young woman in her 20s. Um, she's a musician, she was in a punk band. And um, one of her bandmates, um, uh, a guy, was accused by an ex-girlfriend um, of having um, abused her in, in some way. And most of the band members kind of jumped to his defense, but, but this woman decided, no, I have to, I have to believe the accuser. Um, and she got on the internet, you know, she got on Facebook and just condemned her, her bandmate, just wrote, you know, all, all, all kinds of things. Um, and eventually he, he left the band and the last she heard, you know, he had been fired from his job, he had been kicked out of his apartment, he had moved to another city, he was not doing well. Um, but then the same thing happened to her it came out that when she was a teenager, like that some, something she had posted, she had engaged in body shaming, a friend of hers, you know, some bullying, cyber bullying. Um, and that got splashed all over the internet. And suddenly she was the one being condemned. Um, and she kind of went through the same cycle of, you know, she had to leave the band and she lost her job and she lost all of her friends and she was just isolated and depressed. And, you know, kind of the, the scary thing uh, was how, she didn't, she didn't think that was wrong. You know, she, she told David Brooks, like, no, I think this is completely appropriate. I think this is what's supposed to happen. Um, all I can say is, like, I'm sorry, and I feel terrible, and I'm a monster. And that's where she was left, you know. Um, you know, our, our, our culture tends to take um, sin, doesn't always use the word sin, um, it seems to have, you know, a sense of justice and of condemning wrongs, um, but to the end that the person is just cast out and is, and is ostracized. Um, you know, so Brooks, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you can read those quotes up there. You know, the point of the, the article here was just to warn um, that the, the cruelty of call-out culture is, you know, that it ends up dehumanizing. Um, and, and casting out the sinner. Um, on the other hand, Miroslav Volf, um, 15, 16 years ago, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, um, all about repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And he had this, this quote um, in, in there that I think emphasizes how the Christian... Uh, patterns of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation are all about insisting that the, the other or the offender, you know, whoever it is that has committed the wrong, um, is in fact human. Uh, here, here's, what he, here's what he says about this. So a, this is at the end of a, a, about a two-page section where he's dealing with, you know, what is it that was really revolutionary about Jesus' message? Um, 
you know, was it simply that he was calling out unjust structures and, and you know, you know, calling out the, uh, the hypocritical leaders of the Jewish people? Well, what he says is, Jesus called to repentance, not simply those who falsely pronounced sinful what was innocent and sinned against their victims, but the victims of oppression themselves, right? So you think about that story in John 8, um, where the woman is accused of adultery. Um, and Jesus and Jesus goes through that that confrontation, um, you know, in which he says, you know, let him who has no sin cast the first stone, and everybody kind of disbands, no one's left. And the last thing that he says to the woman is, go and sin no more. So he actually calls her to repentance. Um, it will not do to divide Jesus' listeners neatly into two groups and claim for the oppressed, repentance means new hope, whereas for the oppressors, it means radical change. The truly revolutionary character of Jesus' proclamation lies precisely in the connection between the hope he gives to the oppressed and the radical change he requires of them. Um, though some sins have been imputed to them, other sins of theirs were real. Though they suffered at the sinful hand of others, they also committed sins of their own. It is above all to them that he offered divine forgiveness. Um, this call to repentance, um, the way Jesus pursued it, and the way the church is called uh, to pursue this, is ultimately a matter of treating the offenders as human uh, and of recognizing, recognizing in them um, their, yeah, their, their, uh, their humanity um, and, and inviting them to be restored fully. Um, that's going to be one of the big differences uh, between the practice of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation, and what we've grown used to in our, in our culture. Um, questions or comments? It is worth asking. Let's, let's discuss about this a little bit. I alluded to this a bit, but you might have other, other thoughts to share. It's worth asking, does outrage culture, does call-out culture, you know, what we're all used to on Twitter, is, is that getting anything right? Is there anything there that we ought to look at and say, you know, um, is there anything to be appreciated uh, in, in this? I mean, it's, it's been a rapid change, it seems, in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, Greg. Yep. Yes. So many of the of the movements um, have been about giving a voice to minorities, victims of various kinds um, that have not had one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Emily. It's taking the sin seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's refusing to brush sin under the rug. Yeah. 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 That's right. And some of those elements, as we talk about, as we talk about, well, actually, really all of it, repentance, forgiveness, forgiveness, uh, reconciliation, sorry. Um, um, some of those elements are going to come to the fore. Like they, are, they are things that we need, uh, that we need to do, um, just not to the end of ostracization um, and of, of casting out. Um, we should spend a little time talking about sin itself. Um, you know, again, the context for this whole class is we are all sinners. Um, the gospel is good news for sinners. That's the, the reason that we have to talk about all this. So we should spend some time talking about what sin is. Um, so as we've said frequently um, here at, at CTK, um, when we talk about sins, I think the catechism answer to that is any want of conformity to God's law. Any, any lack, any, any place where we're falling short of God's law. And that can be, <coughs> that can be discrete things. You steal something, you disobey your parents, dishonor your parents, um, you know, uh, adultery, you know, those can be just discrete actions. Um, but the first commandment um, that tells us not to have any gods above the one true God, uh, and the greatest commandment, love God uh, with all your heart, uh, and strength and soul and mind, um, you know, those things, you know, those, those, those two things would help us see 
um, that sin runs much deeper than discrete things that we do, uh, but rather it's about what we love. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a condition uh, of our heart. And it's better to understand you know, those discrete infractions of the law as being the outgrowth and the symptoms, the manifestations of the fact that our hearts are turned away from God and towards other things. Um, because since the garden, you know, we've been believing this lie um, that God is not who he says he is, uh, that he does not love us as he says he does, he is not powerful enough to save us, uh, he cannot really take care of us, and so we have to find something else, some way else, uh, to take care of ourselves. So we talk about, you know, Dorothy Sayers refers to sin as a radical interior dislocation of the heart, um, which is, I think, just a, a way of restating Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Uh, who can understand it? Um, sin is talked about under a variety of different metaphors um, in Scripture. Those of us that have been getting together for the uh, theology reading group uh, on the book The Crucifixion, um, Fleming Rutledge um, deals with a bunch of these and then tries to bring them together to give us a fuller sense of just what Jesus was doing on the cross. Um, sin is referred to as uh, a power. Um, so Genesis 4-7, Rick mentioned that last week. You know, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Um, Ephesians 2 um, and then several places in, in Romans refer to sin as like this foreign alien power that dominates and rules and reigns and has to be defeated. Um, sin is referred to as a disease or sometimes some kind of a, a condition. Um, so Luke 1, uh, Zechariah talks about light for those who have been walking in darkness. A lot of times blindness is the, the condition that's described. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks about how we were dead in our trespasses, which gets you know, beyond disease, but it's a condition. Um, sin is referred to as uh, a debt that we owe. Jesus teaches us to pray um, that we would forgive our debtors um, and asks us to, uh, prompts us to ask for forgiveness for our debts. Um, several of the parables that he uses, Matthew 18 and Luke 7, are both examples of, of times when he told stories about um, you know, someone who owed a huge debt and had that forgiven and then refused to forgive the small debt uh, of someone else. So it's, it's spoken of in kind of economic terms sometimes. Um, and it's referred to as a guilt in kind of a legal sense, um, a way in which we have fallen short uh, of, of the glory of God, um, a way we've transgressed. Uh, his law. Um, there's one passage, actually there's, there's two. If you notice Romans 5 gets quoted a lot up there and if you read, so we actually we just had three sermons in a row on Romans 5, 12 to 21, or to the end of it, I forget how many verses it has, but Romans 5, 12 to the end um, is one place you can look to find uh, all of these images brought together uh, in one place. Another one is Colossians 2. Um, Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the, to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you can see there's rulers and authorities that are being disarmed. So there's the power. Um, there's the fact that we were dead in our trespasses. There's our condition. Um, he canceled the record of debt. Uh, and then in the same sentence, it stood against us with its legal demands. So right there in the space of three verses, um, Paul has brought all of these images together um, to talk about what sin is um, and what Christ uh, was doing uh, on the cross. He's defeated these powers. He's canceled this debt. Uh, we've been declared righteous. Uh, we've been healed of our infirmities. So all of those things. Um, we've talked before, I 
thought I had a better picture than this, uh, so I apologize. Um, we've, we've talked before about how what sin does is that it breaks all of these relationships that we were created to enjoy. So this picture comes from the book When Helping Hurts, um, which, is, which is a book about um, poverty alleviation. And it, it has a, a good, uh, almost half the book is, is uh, more theological in nature. Um, and you know, so in that case, it talks about how true poverty is the result of these, of these broken relationships. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's applicable more generally than that. You know, we're intended to live in relationship to God, uh, in relationship to ourself, in relationship to others, and in relationship to the rest of creation. Um, and all of those relationships get broken uh, and torn apart um, by sin. Um, in this class, of course, we're primarily focused on how do we address the broken relationship with others. Um, but then remember, as we said first, and we'll return to this repeatedly, that has to be grounded ultimately in the fact that God has reconciled the relationship that we have with him. It's primarily our relationship to our creator uh, and to our God um, that's been healed, and that gives us the confidence and the wherewithal to do these hard things of repenting, seeking forgiveness, and being reconciled. Several of the fathers of the church or, or older theologians um, made much of the fact that sin breaks us apart from each other, um, that it introduces divisions uh, into our lives uh, with, with other people. Um, Augustine used the image of Adam being broken up. Um, you know, of course, he didn't mean this, this literally. He's, he's commenting on the Psalms here. He says, Adam is scattered throughout the globe. Set in one place, he fell, and as it were, broken small, he has filled the whole world. Um, but the divine mercy gathered up the fragments from every side, forged them in the fire of love, and welded into one. Um, what had been broken. Um, talking there about the church being united uh, in Christ, you know, knit together as, as, one, as one person, um, where we've been broken apart uh, by, by sin. Um, and then Luther, Luther was, re was really fond of this Latin phrase, curvatus in se, it means curved inward on yourself. It's a really vivid image of what sin does, that if we're intended to live with an outward orientation, like worshiping God, right? Loving our neighbor, serving them, uh, enjoying creation. Um, sin turns us inward. Um, you know, if we can't trust God to take care of ourselves, we have to look inward uh, to find our security and our protection. Um, one of our confession liturgies talks about how we walk away from neighbors in need wrapped in our own concerns, right? It's this picture of being turned inward um, and thereby being separated you know, for everybody else. Um, so, and yet, Rick made this point in one of the early sermons on, on Romans, I think last fall, um, contrary to, you know, the outrage culture that wants to take the offender and cast them out of society, um, because we're all sinners, um, sin also forms this common bond. You know, so it, it turns us inward on ourselves and separates us, but then if we look at our plight in common with the rest of humanity. And this is going to be a big deal when we talk about forgiveness. We'll mention this soon. Um, you know, we realize that sin is actually something that binds us together. You know, that we're all in the same boat. We're all in need of the same salvation. Um, any thoughts or questions? About any of this? Yeah, Lindsay. I was going back to your, your question about is there any good in the online outrage yeah. culture? And I think one thing it does for the oppressed is it validates the, the depth of, of the suffering. And I think that that can be hard to do alone, too. Uh, right. At times, I think it's uh, very satisfying as someone who identifies and grieves and receives really great. But I think it also points out our kind of 
collective desire to tweak sin, especially when we're the sinner, but or if it's inconvenient for us to sort of um, downplay. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I just think about that as a, as we relate to God. Yeah. And, um, we tend to do that too as we relate to God to downplay how great our sin is. And yeah. 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 We should hate our own sin more. Yeah. Yeah. On on Friday at the at the reading group, somebody made the comment that you know, if you very often it's the case that if you realize that you've wronged someone and you go and apologize to them, you know the response will be something like, "Oh, it's okay. You know, no problem." Right. And that's often not the case. Like it's often, like it wasn't okay. Like something wrong really was done. Um, and, and the comment was, you know, our culture only seems to have these two settings, you know, which is completely downplaying and ignoring the wrong or casting out the offender, right? Like outrage. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, living, living in neither of those extremes, you know, really deals with, with sin. Um, and that's what we're... That's what we're after. Um, yeah. Um, so I just want to just look at a couple passages real quick, um, just to emphasize the, the centrality of this. Um, you know, you might you might not need convincing uh, that this is a central theme uh, to the Bible, but it's worth looking at a couple places where it's actually made central. So one of them, Luke twenty four. Um, the context of this, this is the road to Emmaus, right? So this is after the resurrection. Um, you know, this is when Jesus is, is talking to these uh, two um, uh, followers of his uh, who have been disappointed, and, and he's explaining to them that everything in, in the scriptures was pointing at him. Um, and then he gives this very succinct, I, I, would, I would call this a very succinct description of the gospel. Uh, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, uh, beginning from Jerusalem. Um, actually, I didn't, I didn't include in here any of the passages where Jesus goes out and like the main thing he says is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near. I mean, that was, you know, that was one thing he said constantly. Um, but here he's reiterating that repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and then in Acts, uh, when Peter and the apostles are brought uh, before the leaders in Jerusalem, um, again, when they summarize what it is that they need to say, you know, what is it that they're charged with saying, um, you know, so much they must obey God rather than men, um, they say, God exalted him, whom you killed, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So just, again, that is central to the message as Jesus explained it, central as Peter explained it. Um, we look at this verse all the time. You know, this, this makes its way in our, in our liturgy, you know, pretty often. Uh, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Um, a hard thing to believe, which is one reason we keep repeating it to ourselves. Um, and then lastly, uh, Ephesians 2, I mentioned this earlier. Um, immediately after Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that gives that succinct statement uh, that you're saved um, uh, by grace and not by work so that you can't boast, um, it immediately draws the implication um, you know, from that pithy statement of the gospel, um, that reconciliation between Christians uh, is, is on offer. Um, so here's that strong language I, I talked about earlier. Uh, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man. So remember, Augustine talked about Adam being broken apart. Uh, but here, uh, he has created in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So those are just the, you know, some of the, the key passages that, that tell us that this is a, a really central reality to our life together. You can. So, thinking about Jesus and the apostles' message of repentance and forgiveness in the context of the larger uh, culture of the sacrificial system, maybe this is just conjecture, maybe you studied this somewhere in the world. So, what, what do you imagine uh, the people in the villages and towns would have understood Jesus? Simply a recognition that the sacrifices of the Lord goats could never cover sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, um, so I think that system um, already gave them a vocabulary and things to do, rituals, images to understand sin as being a personal thing. So you had to, you had, you did have to bring sacrifices for your own, you know, as well as there being a corporate, you know, day of atonement, you know, and things where all Israel would, would corporately repent. They, they, you know, they, they were probably stronger on that than we are, right? I mean, they really had, had both those things um, woven into their, into their culture. I, I, I think it's more the latter, like the really radical thing, you know, about this. Um, you know, um, the, the system that they had often prescribed, you know, times when um, sin would be such that in addition to having make, in addition to having to make uh, a sacrifice, uh, you all also were cast out of the people for a time. You know, you were unclean and you were, and you were outside. Um, you know, and that you know, these, these, these pictures of Jesus um, going to the people, um, including those who had been falsely identified as sinners, you know, the, the blind and the lame and the weak, um, you know, going to these people and, and drawing them in um, and, and offering them a place and offering them, you know, a, a mode of repentance and forgiveness that didn't depend on constantly having to go out and come back in, but that you could be permanently reconciled. Um, that, I think, was more the radical, the, the change that comes about. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, okay, so for the rest of our time this morning, um, I want to give an overview um, so now we'll, we'll begin turning to this handout. Um, and I want to give an overview of, you know, these actual steps. So we're going to talk about repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And again, today an overview, but then weeks two through four, we're going to take each of these for an entire week and, and really dig in. Um, so we've said already repentance is a way of life for a Christian, recognizing our need more deeply. Uh, with confidence that Christ has provided for all of it. Um, there's this wonderful circularity um, to repentance and forgiveness, that on the one hand, uh, repentance grows out of forgiveness, and in particular, out of the forgiveness we enjoy from God, right? So his kindness leads us to repentance in Romans 2. Um, Psalm 130 says, With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. Um, on the other hand, Forgiveness grows out of a repentant heart, you know, so it's, it's, it's when you understand yourself to be a sinner uh, and to not be morally superior to the one you need to forgive, um, that's when it's possible 
to, uh, to forgive. Um, so repentance and forgiveness, um, again, inhaling, exhaling, they, you know, bit of a chicken egg or just a circular reality. Um, and when repentance and forgiveness meet, reconciliation grows from the desire for full peace, grounded in what God has done uh, to bring peace between everyone uh, in, in Christ. So let's look at each of these in turn. Uh, for each of these, I, I want to give you one like key passage again from the Bible. So 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 10 to 13, um, is really significant, and when you stop and think about what it's saying, um, it's, it's provocative and very counterintuitive. Um, Paul talks about a godly grief. Uh, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That, that, that actually might be a way of summing up the difference between the Christian practice of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation and outrage culture. I mean, this kind of gets, Lindsay, at what you said about, you know, we should, we should hate our sin more. Like, we should really be grieved, you know, over our sin. But we want it to be a godly grief that leads to repentance. Um, and then Paul talks about, you know, his encouragement that he sees this happening, you know, in the Corinthians uh, as, as, as he's written to them. Um, he says, at every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter, and he can't mean by that that they weren't sinners. Right? They're grieved over their sin. They're not innocent of sin. Um, but they're proving uh, that in them there is true faith, you know, by which they're declared righteous, by which they are innocent. Um, yeah. Um, the, the best picture in Scripture of the difference between a godly grief that produces repentance and a worldly grief that leads to death would be the difference between Peter and Judas. Um, both of whom betray their Lord. Um, you know, Judas does it explicitly and for money. Um, you know, Peter, out of fear, denies that he knows the Lord. Um, the grief over that leads Judas to suicide, but the grief over that leads Peter, ultimately, to restoration. There's a beautiful picture in John, John 21 where, you know, after the resurrection, Peter realizes that Jesus is on the beach. He's out fishing, and he doesn't even wait for the boat to dock. He jumps out and swims to shore, just like swims towards the one to whom he needs to be reconciled. Um, that's what it looks like for godly grief to produce repentance. Um, so, just looking at the handout here, um, the process of repentance is simple but not easy. Um, it, it, for that reason, has to be grounded in trust in the sufficiency of Christ for you, which leads to real sorrow for sin and determination to change and pursuit of reconciliation. Um, skipping a bit on the handout here, there is a clarification. It's, it's important that we not repent for things that we don't believe were wrong. Um, that is a, um, that is a possibility that we fall into. Um, but as far as like what the actual steps of repentance look like, um, it starts with an honest admission of your part um, in the wrong, um, and and you know. At, at this point, there shouldn't be too much like trying to say like, look, this was my part and this was your part and here's how you actually caused me to do, you know, it should simply be, this is what I did. This was my part in the wrong. Um, without excuses, uh, without, without conditions. Um, yeah, along the lines of, of making no excuses. Um, very common. You know, it, it, Jeremy here wrote, or RUF wrote, I'm not sure who wrote this originally, um, but it's right. You know, treat triggering factors as occasions and not causes. It, it's so often the case that we get into repenting and we really want to say, look, I know I did this thing that hurt you, but you just pushed my buttons. 
you know, and that's, and that's why. Um, you need to understand those things as being the occasion of your sin and not the cause of your sin. The cause of our sin is that we're sinners. Okay, what causes us to sin against other people uh, is that we are sinful. Our circumstances don't cause us to sin. Um, our repentance needs to reflect that. So instead of focusing on, you know, the things that led us to led up to us sinning, whether it's something the other person did or or not, you could just say, "Look, I was really stressed out. I was really tired. It's been a really rough week at work." Sure, but that's not what caused you to sin. What caused you to sin is the fact that you're a sinner, um, and the focus should be should be there. Um, you have to be willing to listen to a realistic account of what your sin cost the other person, which can be really difficult. Um, it can be difficult to hear um, exactly, you know, the pain uh, that's, that's been caused um, in the other person. And it can be really easy um, to try to shut down the conversation, to try to shut down what the other person is, is saying. Um, Again, I mean, this is, this is just getting at why all of this has to be grounded in our understanding of Christ's sufficiency for us. If we don't have that in place, if our identity is based on, you know, being a pretty good person, then listening to someone else tell you how you hurt them and what that cost, what that cost them is just ripping away your identity, and you're not going to be able to take it. Um, if our identity is not secure in Christ, you know, this part of repentance is going to be really hard, possibly impossible. Um, and lastly, uh, it's important to provide fruits of repentance rather than just an expression of sorrow. Um, that has to be distinguished very carefully. Fruits of repentance is not penance. Okay, it's not here's the thing that I'm going to do, um, you know, to prove to you that I really am a good person. Like that gets back to like my identity is I'm a good person and look, I'll show you, I'll prove it. That's not what fruits of repentance are. Um, fruits of repentance are a heartfelt desire to understand, um, you know, here is how my offense cost you something. How can I take responsibility for that? How can I play a part in restoring what was lost? Um, yeah, and this is, as it says here, this is the beginning of reconciliation. When we get to reconciliation, we'll actually talk a little bit about, um, you know, what that might really look like. Yeah. I have a question about the clarification to not repent So the pro the the problem with the problem with that there's a there's a there's a couple things. Um, it is likely that in your heart what you're saying is like I'm really sorry that if you felt that way. Like I'm really sorry if you took it that way, and it ends up putting the guilt on the other person. Sometimes those words actually come out, right? I'm really sorry if I hurt you. I'm really sorry if you were offended, and that ends up putting the guilt on the other person. Um, unintentionally, but it but it does. Um, you know, real repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation requires, like, at some point it requires a common understanding of what the wrong actually was. Um, I would say if there's real disagreement on, you know, whether something you did was wrong or not, that's probably the point uh, at which a third person is, is helpful. Um, and, you know, a little bit that's talked about in the, the next page of the handout. Um, because you're right, that is often the case. Yeah, but I don't, it, you, you, you can't, you can't repent for something that you don't really believe, um, was, was wrong. Yeah. Yeah, Bob. Here, here might be an example. So, don't yeah. know that often. <laughs> Sometimes have a situation, occasionally, I'll say, I'll say something for, and it'll, it'll, Come across, it'll come across in such a way that Kelly hears it as deeply offensive, but I completely didn't mean it that way, and truly from the heart, right? So she got offended. I didn't intend to offend. I had no sinful motive in my heart. Um, 
no third person is going to be able to adjudicate. Yeah. You know, between the you know the things that she felt when she was she heard what I said and the things that are you know I spoke. So there really wasn't a sin there, but there was a perception of a sin. Yeah. And it was deeply painful and hurtful. So what do I do with that? <laughs> so I guess it is worth I guess it is worth expressing grief that the other person has been hurt. Right. You know. Um sorry you felt that way, but I didn't mean Yeah, the 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 yeah, the, the problem there is with the language of I'm of I'm sorry. Like, you know, I can I can see that you're in pain. I don't want you to be in pain. Um I I mean I think that's actually a place for you to even ask, okay, I did not intend any offense in this action, but it caused it. And because I love you, you know, how can my behavior in the future be less unintentionally painful? Again, I, I, I think most of this applies, like, you know, a lot of this applies to marriages. I think it applies to all of our relationships, but especially when, I mean, like, close, repeated, you know, friendships, roommates. Yeah. Yeah, Tim. It seems like in some ways, it's because you're starting with, I don't know if you meant this to be linear like this, like admission, but it does seem like that understanding of, of your situation, whatever that looks like, relating to each other or how you're communicating, whatever that, like that's longer than just a, I'm sorry, I forgive you. Yeah. And like in that situation, having a deeper understanding about how people relate and how you relate to the other person who has been wrong, been wrong or felt wrong or walked past it, like whatever, it just takes longer. Like, and it seems to mm -hmm. be like the length of time is always lost in romance because it just can be like the. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, that's, I mean, that is an aspect of when we talk about this being just like a regular part, an ongoing part of our life together. Um, yeah, we should not give the impression that any of these things are like one-time transactions and you're done. Like, a lot of this is just, it, it takes time and it is ongoing. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. On a lot of it, it seems, I don't know if it's assumed or if it applies across the board, but if we're all sinners under God, then we're all equally sinners, and this this repentance you're talking might be amongst equals, right? Right, uh, I right. I see as you, you know, Bob Kelly are in a marital relationship. Right. But what if it's like, not even, what if it's like a parent to a child, or I don't know if this is what is to Mir's mm. point. Sometimes they're, we're not all equal, sometimes, or it doesn't feel like we're all equal. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me defer that uh, and actually see. Like I said, Jeremy and I have been. I mean, Jeremy has developed most of this. Um, I didn't have anything specific. I mean, you're right. Uh, cases in which there are like power dynamics like that call for some special thought. Um, and uh, let me see if we can return to that. Personally, like myself and my children. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Let me let me defer that and see if we can talk about it specifically later on. Yeah, Paula. Yeah, and we're gonna, and we're gonna, we're gonna talk later in this course about the passages in scripture that talk about you know the process. Yeah. Um, so forgiveness, uh, key passage Ephesians four. Um, this is really strong again. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Um, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's strong about that is that, you know, that seems to say, like, you, you really have two choices. Forgive one another or grieve the Holy Spirit. And whatever that means, and there's lots of debate about exactly what that means, that's pretty strong language. It's clearly something we don't want to do. Um, this, this, um, this little diagram here um, is actually taken from a book written by Desmond Tutu, um, who was the bishop in, in South Africa who was involved in the truth and reconciliation uh, process there after apartheid. Um, the, book, the book is called The Book of Forgiving. Um, it's pretty good. It's not really written from an exclusively Christian uh, perspective. Um, but the reason that we included this little diagram, you know, was that, you know, it really does depict, you know, life in the presence of sin uh, as leading to only one of two places, you know, either a cycle of revenge um, or to uh, a path of forgiveness. Um, and the, the elements that he describes here are, are, are similar to... Um, uh, to what we're to what we're laying out. Um, I think this is one of Keller's best best points that he's made in his preaching over the years that um, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. You know that when an offense has been committed, forgiveness is a matter of not exacting the price of that offense, which does mean in part that you pay some of it. Um, and we are enabled to do that because we know that God in Christ has done that uh, to an extent that we can't comprehend, that we could never match, that he has done that for us. Um, so we've said already Jesus ties our ability uh, to our ability to forgive, uh, to our ability to repent. Um, Because it is this, this form of voluntary suffering, it means that forgiveness is both a determination of the heart and then actions to release someone from guilt. And both of those things, it's, it's Tim, you said linear earlier, this is not really a, a linear thing. Those things can happen in conjunction with each other. They happen over time. A lot of times the feeling doesn't come first. Actions can come before the feeling of, of being able to forgive somebody. Um, we'll go like five more minutes, but I have been asked by Dana to remind uh, any parents that have kids downstairs. It's 9.45 and those classes are ending, so if you need to get up and get kids, don't worry. Um, practical steps in forgiveness. Um, so this is now from the perspective of the one who's been offended and needs to extend forgiveness. Um, acknowledge the sin, right? So don't say, that's okay. Don't say it was no big deal, if it was. Um, acknowledge, yeah, I was hurt. Um, just like you can't repent of something you don't think was wrong, you can't forgive something that you don't acknowledge uh, was wrong. Uh, determine not to take punishment into your own hands. Um, recognize that doing that, the bitterness, um, is going to eat you up. You have to release yourself uh, also. Um, pursue a tender heart. So like I said, the heart usually takes time uh, to follow actions. It, forgiveness is actually something that the one who's been offended uh, has to pursue, has to pray for. Uh, it takes work. It takes time. Um, it's not, again, it's not a, we're not talking about one meeting and then everything is great and everything is done. It's not how it works. Um, and remain open to reconciliation. Um, couple, a couple clarifications. We'll go into more detail about, about these in, in future weeks. Um, but these are both really important, so I want to state them now. One is that forgiveness does not mean that you automatically trust the other person. You know, there are times when you are wronged in ways that, you know, have ongoing consequences for what the relationship is going to look like. 
um, you know, someone who has hurt you is not automatically trustworthy, you know, just because they've genuinely repented and you've genuinely forgiven them. We'll, we'll talk more details about that. Um, but the second thing, uh, forgiveness does not mean allowing someone to continue in evil. Um, forgiving someone doesn't mean that there aren't also consequences. Sometimes those consequences are legal. Sometimes it's church discipline. Um, we don't want to think that, you know, forgiveness is one process and discipline or accountability is another. The two have to go together. In fact, sometimes, um, I was reminded of this, I, I reread uh, Rachel Denolander's testimony. She was one of the ones that um, accused uh, Larry Nasser, the, the, the sports doctor at Michigan State, um, of abusing gymnasts over a long period of time. And she's a Christian, and her testimony um, uh, very eloquently stated the fact that her forgiveness of him and the justice that she demanded from the court um, had to go together. Um, so those are, those are two important clarifications. Um, let me quickly talk about reconciliation. Hebrews 12 admonishes us to strive for peace for, with everyone. So it is a, it takes work, it is striving. Um, striving that is empowered uh, by the spirit and our knowledge of what has been done for us. What is reconciliation? The process of rebuilding trust and learning to live in peace after sin's been committed. Um, and this one, you know, one thing I didn't say along the way, repentance and forgiveness can both be unilateral things. You know, you can repent to someone that doesn't forgive you, and you can forgive to someone who hasn't repented. Um, in fact, that's often the best thing for you. I would say it's always the best thing for you. Release yourself uh, from, you know, the requirement of exacting punishment. Um, but reconciliation requires both parties. It doesn't work without repentance and forgiveness, um, both being in, in place. Um, practical steps, to the extent possible, uh, the cost that's been exacted should be restored. Um, it's important to think about changes of behavior that would protect the offended party in the future. Um, again, it might, uh, it might require a, a, a change uh, in the relationship. Um, and lastly, we talked about third-party accountability. Um, you know, there, there definitely are times when it helps to bring friends, pastors, elders, even professional counselors uh, into the relationship uh, to help work through what was done what really needs to be repented of, what really needs to be forgiven, communication problems, um, you know, we should, we should seek to avail ourselves of, of those things. Um, the reality of an already but not yet world is that reconciliation may always be incomplete. There are some wrongs, um, you know, where reconciliation may not be complete the side of eternity. Um, and yet we're called to pursue it um, because we're living in light of eternity. You know, there, there are some things that are um, uh, eschatologically true, you know? Um, you know, there are things that we know will be true in new heavens and new earth, and we're called to live in light of those things, even if we can't fully enjoy them now. So uh, we're gonna dive into all of this stuff in a lot more detail uh, over the next five weeks. Um, this is, this is giving you an overview of where we'll be. Um, let me pray for us and I can, I can stick around and do, do questions. Um, so, Father in heaven, um, we need a lot of help. Um, you know, we, we know all of us uh, from personal experience. Every one of us has been the offender and has been offended. Uh, every one of us has longed for reconciliation when it was far off. Um, hopefully, we have all tasted the joy uh, of, of experiencing reconciliation. We certainly have tasted that joy in our relationship with you. Um, Father, for those who this morning may be struggling to feel that, you know, for those of us that are here, uh, um, not enjoying full communion with you, even though we enjoy union with you all the time, uh, we pray that this next hour, worshiping you, um, 
would be a taste, that we would hear you uh, forgiving us of our sins, that we would readily and eagerly repent, um, that we would uh, come to your table uh, and feast on your word uh, as those who have been brought uh, from enmity into friendship. Uh, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks.